it's really for all those people out there who feel like they have something in them to give. They feel like they want to make an impact, feel like they're angry about something, but they don't know what to do about it. Welcome to Real Fiction. Shireen Tadros is here. The high-profile broadcast journalist left her position with Al Jazeera English to become a human rights advocate. Taking Sides is her book. It was just released in the United States. Today, we discuss the line between journalism and advocacy, and really finding your role in the world. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. I host Real Fiction Podcast, which is now part of Real Fiction Forum. We used to be called Real Fiction Radio. We took a little break. Um, but now you can find us on realfictionforum.com. I think both of the links still work. But what's different? Well, we're going to be adding some original stories and reportage to the platform. But for now, you can download the interviews from the website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for being here. And I will be back in a moment with author Shireen Tadros. My guest today is Shireen Tadros. Her new book, Taking Sides, a memoir about love, war, and changing the world, was just released in the U.S. She is head of the United Nations office at Amnesty International in New York. She previously worked as a broadcast journalist for Sky News and Al Jazeera English as the channel's correspondent in Gaza, which is, distressingly, a world headline again. Tadros grew up in the UK and Egypt and studied Middle Eastern politics. I should say studied and lived Middle Eastern politics given her unique upbringing. The book, Taking Sides, does many things. It addresses the boundary between journalism and advocacy and the personal decision by this acclaimed journalist to leave the profession after covering the world's most difficult conflicts. Shireen, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. Laurie, thank you for having me. So the timing of this book is almost unbelievable, uh, given what um, everyone is watching around the world today. But I think the question that readers will first grapple with is, why did someone at the top of their very high-profile foreign correspondent job, decide to leave the profession? Yeah, I think that from a very young age, I had sort of a fire inside of me to do some good in the world. And um, that's the reason why I decided to become a journalist. I saw an opportunity there to inform people, but also to move people, to move them to action, move them to writing letters, move them to doing things. And um, early on in my career, I started to realize that it's not my mandate as a journalist to change policy, to get people to do things. It's my mandate to inform them. And we hope that they will be angry enough or moved enough to, to take action. Um, and so it started to become, my, you know, my journalism career started to become very unfulfilling. And, um, you know, I would go to Yemen or to Iraq or to Syria or to Egypt um, and so on and so on and cover these conflicts. But then, and, you know, it started to become very obvious to me that this wasn't a fulfilling thing for me. Not to say that journalism isn't fulfilling for many people. It is a 
a vital, vital link in the chain to making change, but it wasn't the role that I felt like I wanted to have in the process of making change. Okay. And that is an evolution that comes out in the book. Um, But I'd like to ask you, when you first joined Al Jazeera English, um, and Al Jazeera as a news outlet is, I think, for at least was for a long time, and perhaps maybe still is, considered an outlet that um, represents um, both sides, sometimes to um, great frustration to the to viewers in the Middle East, but they represent both sides. And I believe that you felt that um, part of the mission and purpose was to work for an outlet that aligned with fair, balanced reporting. Can you walk us through those early days and then how that, you know, how your opinions maybe evolved? Sure. I mean, it's a complicated one, right? And I really, I'm super honest in the book about Al Jazeera. It's it's um, the great things about it, um, the early days as I was there before Al Jazeera English even launched, um, and also some of the, you know, the, the criticisms that are leveled that are, I, I think, justified of, of the channel. So, you know, Al Jazeera Arabic is a different beast to Al Jazeera English. So the Arabic has, you know, been around for decades. It's, um, you know, it, it, it has a certain reputation in the Middle East, and it's certainly in the early days had the reputation of having the opinion and the other opinion. That's what that's what its slogan was. And it was the first sort of pan-Arab station to really, um, to even sort of bring on Israeli guests, for example, uh, speak in different languages. It, it sort of really tried to push the barrier of journalism and show an Arab audience a different opinion, not just the propaganda that they were used to. Um, but it certainly also was the channel that aired the tapes and, and got the tapes from Osama bin Laden. Um, they had correspondents who had very good networks with um, you know certain groups in, in countries, and that gave it a certain reputation, I think, globally. And I think some of that reputation was not valid insofar as a lot of people that didn't understand Arabic were watching and and judging it. And there was a lot of jealousy there because Al Jazeera Arabic, you know, who are these people who are getting, you know, these exclusives all the time. Um, but then, you know, slowly, it, it, you know, certainly some of the criticism started to become um, ingrained within the channel. I think Al Jazeera English, when it came um, to being um, in, in 2006, it, it was it was a very different animal. And although it was based in Doha in Qatar, just like um, Al Jazeera Arabic is, it was a different building, different staff, different management. And um, I was very much attracted in those days to the idea of an Arab sort of channel based in the Middle East, but broadcasting in English and with some of the sort of um, values of British broadcasting, American broadcasting that I had held, you know, to high esteem. Um, and that, that was really, that was really what I was about. I was growing up in London as, you know, I had Egyptian parents. I looked Egyptian, I had an Egyptian name, but I, you know, my Arabic was pretty sketchy. It was, you know, it was, uh, I had, I had, I spoke with an accent. Um, I, ha- I had this identity crisis and Al Jazeera English was a home for me in that way because it was a sort of, you know, Arabic station, but with this, high, you know, very much Western values and, and, and Western tint to it. So um, we were a perfect match, as I say in the book. And you mentioned this in the book that you kind of looked the part, you were, you had the kind of personal profile that they were looking for in launching this channel. At the same time, I had the impression that um, you did not consider yourself 
it, you didn't consider the role of a reporter um, as being part of the story in a way that is um, so much an issue with many media outlets and perhaps is one issue is one reason why trust in media is is low. Can you share something about how you viewed your role as a reporter and whether you thought you should be part of the story, your high profile, getting a Twitter feed set up? How did that fit when you were with Al Jazeera? Yeah, I mean, you know, this has really evolved over time, but I I still think what I thought back then, which is that journalists are vehicles with which, you know, we 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 get the information we sometimes, you know, help to pick out the important parts and make it, um, you know, somewhat more digestible, especially when they're complicated stories to the to the outside world. Um, and we're vehicles with which the you can hear from a refugee on on a bridge in Iraq about why she fled her village. Um, but we're not the story. The story isn't about us going to Iraq. The story is about what is happening in Iraq. And I think that what's happened over time, and I certainly saw this trajectory myself, it's it's certainly a reason why I started feeling really uncomfortable with my own job, is that it's become so sensationalist, especially television news, that you know, in order to keep the the audience um, compelled and, and watching so that they don't switch over to another channel, the reporter is so prevalent in the report. And it's like, we we now guide you through it. We speak to you a lot more. You see us a lot more. Um, you see us doing things that really, I, I'm, I'm not totally sure why we're taking those kinds of risks. I mean, what have we learned from this reporter taking that boat and crossing that? What, what have we learned that we wouldn't have learned just speaking to someone who had made that crossing? And then it suddenly becomes about the reporter's experience crossing an ocean to get to safety or whatever, not not the actual, you know, the survivors of the story. And I think that really does a disservice. Um, and it creates this sort of cult, this personality. Um, and and it's dangerous because, of course, you know, if you're on television, then then there's an ego there. There's a pride there. There's there there's something in you that that wants to be on television. And I say that for myself, having been in broadcast for for you know a decade. Um, so to feed that and to sort of start to make the reporter the center of the story, which I think is is becoming increasingly the you know the trajectory, especially with foreign news correspondents, um, I think is really dangerous because I think we 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 start to lose sight of what we're actually doing and who we're doing this for. I remind listeners, my guest today is Shireen Tadros. We're talking about her new book, Taking Sides. And, you know, in many ways, Taking Sides is a kind of psychological account of what it's like to report from the field for long periods of time. And you just alluded to this. When when we're viewing something on, on television or on a screen, uh, we have the decision, we, we can make the decision about how long we want to watch and when we want to step away. A reporter does not have that luxury. And in fact, you were in, um, you were in a, a crisis unfolding in Gaza years ago uh, when the border closed and you and one other reporter were the only ones behind behind that wall reporting, I think it was for something like 76 days. So, you know, that cycle, that psychological landscape is so important. I think when we think about what the, what the reporters going through, what the families, what, what your family went through, and then what it's like to view that story from a distance. So as you're watching maybe the, the, the new uh, war in Israel unfold, what kind of comes to mind in terms of how long a viewer can sustain 
their attention to to the details that are unfolding versus what is happening on the field through the reporter's eyes. You know, I I, I look at um, what's going now, what's going on now in, in the Gaza Strip and in in parts of Israel, and I you know my heart breaks because you know it's almost as if everyone forgets about the previous rounds of violence and everyone is just yeah. completely shocked at what's going on and how did this happen and and you sort of think like how many times does this have to keep happening and every time we seem so shocked that you know there's violence in the area um and and we're not we we don't really there's it's almost like there's no room in the coverage to talk about the root cause of what you know, it was what, of, of, you know, of, of this violence. Um, and I think it really does a disservice to trying to find peace and justice um, for this conflict. Because if we constantly just react emotionally to what we're seeing, we're not really talking about how to fix the situation so that it doesn't happen again. Um, and it's happening again now. And, and what's really sad, it's like th- this conflict more than anyone I've ever reported on it's all—it's always sort of seen in black and white. You're either on this side or on this side. If you say, well, you know, you know, people have a right to defend themselves. That's it. You're pro-Palestinian. You don't care about the Israelis that were kidnapped and killed and so on. If, and on the other side, it, you know, if you talk about Israel's right to defend itself, suddenly you're pro-Israeli. You hate the Palestinians. There's just there seems to be no nuance. You can't be you can't be sort of anti-occupation, but also believe that Israel has a right to exist. And I mean, it it there. The lack of nuance, especially in coverage here in the U.S., um, is is really tragic, and and you know it's inexcusable given how long this has been going on and how many rounds of violence we've seen. And um, you know, I, I can already see it even on my own social media. I mean, I just I, I just had a baby, so I'm not really you know following the news on a day by day. But of course, I'm I'm sort of looking at my social media all the time, looking at what's going on with, in, in Gaza and um, and how my friends, um, family and so on, my community is reacting. Um, and I can already see how toxic it is um, and, and, you know, how highly emotional and, um, you know, it, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed from from 2009, you know, when I when I first covered um, a war there. It's it's really it's it's really really tragic to watch it happening again and again and again. You say something that's um, really striking here. Um, it's the lack of nuance, and I think how that lack of nuance is impeding the ability uh, to fix a problem or to at least start talking about how to fix the problem. And so, in many ways, this gets back to the trajectory of your. Uh, career um, from a reporter from a reporter in conflict zones to a realization that maybe there is a a different way maybe there's something else that I am being called to do um, can can you talk about what what the moment was when you had a like a kind of a moment of clarity or a, an epiphany that you wanted to shift to you wanted to shift to advocacy yeah. and um, how that plays out. Just to, just to say about that moment, I think, you know, I, I try to write the book in the way that's relatable. So even if you're, you know, you're not thinking about going from journalism to activism, it's, it's, it's really for all those people out there who feel like they have something in them to give. They feel like they want to make an impact, feel like they're angry about something, but they don't know what to do about it. And it's also for those who have this feeling of maybe they're doing very well in their job. Maybe they're making tons of money um it gives them their family gives them a lot of security um 
and so on. But there's something inside of them that feels a little unfulfilled. And that is eating away at them because that's what was going on with me. Um, and, and that's when I jumped ship. But if, if I was to think of one, one moment, I think I described this moment in the book. And it's just as um, Hosni Mubarak, the Egyptian president, after three decades of run, ruling Egypt with this iron fist, uh, is, finally, is finally sort of taken down by this you know, mass movement of Egyptians in 2011 and what's known as the Arab Spring. And I'm standing there in the square where people had been protesting. They've just found out that you know, there's that that the president has has gone. They won as such. Um, they managed to get rid of him. They're celebrating. And I completely get lost in these celebrations. I'm watching, I'm I'm like hugging people. I'm and then I look down on my phone and there's 10 missed calls in the last like few minutes. And, and of course, it's my news desk in, in, in Doha, in Qatar, saying, where are you? <laughs> this is a major news event. You're right in the square. We're trying to get you on to talk about what's going on. But in my head, I, I almost felt like, well, my job's done here. I, I came, I covered the revolution. Now now the president's gone. My, my job is done. But And, and that made, I, I think that was a big indication to me, my lack of interest in covering the story after Hasim Mubarak had stepped down and my lack of interest in being television at all in those in that aftermath days versus being in the square and celebrating you know where my heart truly laid and where I where I thought my my where what I thought my job was and what I wanted my job to be um, because I, I felt very fulfilled in that moment that I had been part of this movement that had helped get rid of Hosni Mubarak and that's not really um what you should feel as a journalist and it certainly mm. should fe- you should certainly should feel in those moments wow i need to get to a live position and you know report this and be on tv that that should have been my my instinct but it wasn't so um you stepped away and um found a new career and life in new york and w- as i was reading the book and even though i th- think I know a lot about what NGOs, non-governmental mm-hmm. organizations do. I actually wasn't really uh, clear on how a, a prominent group like Amnesty International, what is the role and function of that group uh, within the United Nations structure and, mm-hmm. and, and your role? Yeah, so I'm a human rights advocate. I mean, I think it's very much like a human rights lobbyist, if you like, within the United okay. Nations. Um, I I have a team of about ten people, some of them in Geneva, some of them in New York, essentially, and and they are, you know, also lobbyists. Um, and my job is sort of split between looking at the sort of larger picture of what Amnesty International should be doing and where our, our where our sort of impact could lie, because it's a very difficult space. Um, you know, the United Nations, especially New York, is not very open up to NGOs. It's very difficult for us to get in the room to where mm. negotiations are happening. So sometimes we have to do a sort of very critical look at, okay, we're not going to be able to do X and Y, but what can we do with the Syrian conflict, for example? We were not going to be able to get in the room with the Syrian ambassador and convince him to um, to do this or this. But you know what we can do is try and set up a mechanism that essentially will document the war crimes that are happening so that when we get to a point where we can start to prosecute, the, that 
crucial evidence is not lost. It's all there. It's all in files. So we lobby to create a mechanism. We write the resolution or we help. I mean, states write the resolution, of course, but we help to, um, you know, advise on, on how to word things. We help lobby the vote and, and we do that through, you know, the missions in New York, in Geneva, but also in, in the capital because we have advocates who are in, in different capitals too. Um, and we see these votes through and, and sometimes we work on something for two years and and the vote comes through not in our favor and we feel defeated. And other days we work for, you know, months or years on a certain thing and, and, and it's voted in and there's a mechanism there. Or, you know, we've managed to stop an execution in Iran by bringing it to the attention of the Secretary General or, you know, there's, there's, there's different sort of avenues, if you like, for us. But essentially we're, we're, at, we're advocates at the United Nations whose job it is to try and protect and promote human rights and remind states that are there, the, um, the states that are, you know, present at the United Nations, that they have certain obligations, like if, you know, they've signed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or certain treaties or so on, and, and they have obligations under international law not to do this or to do this and to vote in this way. You know, as I'm listening to you uh, speak about this, I'm remembering a, a passage that um, you have in the book, and, and I believe it's with a, a conversation with a colleague and friend named uh, Rula, and you were talking about this very kind of tension between um, documenting what happens as a reporter versus um, what you just outlined as in your work as a lobbyist. Um, and I, as I, th I think about everything you've done and merge those skill sets, don't you still see the two sides as working uh, in concert with each other, the reporting and the reporting, the documenting and the lobbying? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, in the process of making change, change there are there are various roles to be played. And um, the sort of documenting of things, whether it's by a human rights um, organization or by journalists, often because they're the first on the scene, um, is vital. I mean, in fact, I don't I can't do my job at the UN without documentation. Like most of what I'm doing is trying to convince states that actually this is happening and this is a war crime or, or we have evidence that of, of this and we're going to reveal it. And that, that's our that's our ammunition. You know, without that, what do we have? Just, you know, you know trying to appeal to the to the to the morality of these world leaders i mean i can tell you that doesn't work so you know what our ammunition is this um research is this evidence and is the journalists that do these reports and create um, a buzz around a story, create some outrage, um, make it sort of in the news. Um, and, and that really helps us on the inside. Um, where we're working behind closed doors a bit more than the journalists. That really helps us once, you know, that they, they create this buzz to get in the room, to put some pressure. And sometimes we go to journalists and we, and we tell them, by the way, this is what we think is happening. Could you, you know, why don't you, drop a question to the ambassador next time you see him walking and put a camera in his face and ask him so so there's it's definitely a, a relationship that is 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 you know symbiotic um and i have you know if anything even more respect for journalists since leaving um the profession than i did when i when i was one because i've seen you know how how much of an impact the journalists have in in, in changing things. The, the, the difference is it's not their mandate to do so. It's not their job to do so. And I switched because I wanted it to be my job to do so. You know, I'm just thinking about what 
is the what makes a world leader or what makes the Security Council really um, kind of coalesce around an issue? Have you mm. have you noticed it? Is there a technique that that is particularly effective in this very fragmented world? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that um, I certainly think that news coverage is, is is you know is plays a big part of this. I think that when um, you know sometimes we've seen celebrities being used, being brought into mm-hmm. brief on a certain subject, so there's a little bit more pull factor. Um, but essentially, that goes down again to the coverage and 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 our ability to convince journalists that this is worthy. It's it's been very frustrating sometimes with you know a story like what's going on in Ethiopia versus what's going on in Syria or in Ukraine. Um, you know, it's it's like certain conflicts are are seen as more fashionable, sexier, more relevant, um, and we struggle sometimes with some of the others that are just as serious, um, just as worthy of the Security Council's attention and the world's attention, um, but it's very difficult to get it on on, on the radar. But, you know, I, I do think that we, we've come to a point with the Security Council where we almost think that just by them meeting on something, that's a win. And I think that's really dangerous for us in, in the NGO community. We work very hard to put something on the agenda and to get a meeting. And then we sort of put it, take our foot off the gas because it took so much effort to just put it on the agenda but really all that's done is like some sort of dog and pony show at the security council with ambassadors shouting each other and nothing really is is achieved um so i think that we 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 have to stay quite vigilant in the ngo community at what our end game is and um sure celebrate the, the the those little wins it's important to do so celebrate when when you get something on the agenda but keep on keep at it and and i think that that's the the hardest thing about being a human rights advocate it's that it's that long game that you constantly have to play um you know don't be demoralized so celebrate the small wins but realize that to to actually get some sort of change or some sort of justice you know if there's been an attack and so on um it takes a it takes a long time and it will take many many bumps and failures along the way yeah, and those little wins, the, celebrating the little wins is why I think that um, there, there's so much um, power in this book because you you make the point, which I think is what a lot of us think are are we first of all are we doing the right thing in the world, and even if we are, are we doing enough? So what I'm hearing from that answer is you have to take a moment to celebrate uh, those little wins. Um, those achievements and remember that there is a long game. There's, this is not a light switch. It's a process. Right. And it's all about one step at a time. And the first step is to decide to do something, you know, and many people don't, don't take that step. And if you've taken that step, just that decision to, to choose to make a difference, which is a choice. It's not something that's just brought on us. You have to choose to make a difference. That is, that is, that is a, a big leap. Uh, and yeah. um, after that, you need to do those incremental things. Um, and, and I'm not even talking about, you know, creating a, a mechanism to look at war crimes in Syria. I'm talking about getting a sign removed on your street that has been causing, you know, accidents for, for kids trying to cross the road or, you know, all of all of these things, you know, making change is not necessarily doesn't have to be on that sort of big level. As, as I talk about in the, in the book, you know, my my 
my role at the UN is very high stakes, that we're talking about war crimes, we're talking about massive conflicts and so on. But often, you know, where I found most traction or most fulfillment is in some of the smaller cases I've worked on. Um, a Someone someone I, I knew in Sudan who had been taken during a protest and um, just because he was walking past, he was in the wrong place, wrong time. And he didn't, he didn't have his medicine on him. His daughter reached out. She She's completely, you know, you know, beside herself. Her father's going to die if if he doesn't um, if he doesn't get his medicine in the prison. And slowly, through sort of talking through to to diplomats here in Geneva, slow some some sort of small pressure, some sort of outputs from from Amnesty to put a sort of you know a little bit in the in the headlines. Within you know forty eight hours, we managed to get this man out and back to his family. So sometimes it's not sort of the big headline grabbing um, things that have made a difference. Sometimes it's actually uh, made a difference mm. in terms of you know us being you know us as advocates being able to go on with this job, which is so hard. Sometimes it's it's the smaller wins. Absolutely, and I think when you read a book like this and and reflect on life, it it comes down to. Um, thinking about what our individual and collective responsibilities are in in our community and perhaps the the broader world. If I could ask you one last question, there's something really lovely in the final pages of your book. And you say this, you say, we have a habit of kind of asking children what they want to be when they grow up. We almost never ask them what they want to do. Now, you may have written that before we we just mentioned that you you just had a baby a month ago um how are you thinking about that yeah. statement now as a new mom yeah i think about that so much um he's only 4 weeks old and i'm already thinking you know how do i how do i mold this human as much as i can as much as i sort of have the power to do that um into someone who cares and has empathy um and 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 i think about sort of not constantly talking to him about becoming a doctor or a architect or a lawyer, but really talking to him about what kind of difference he wants to make in the world, those smaller things. And that doesn't have to be, you know, when he's 18 years old, that can be very early on in his his life, like always sort of probing and asking um, and making him aware that he is part of a society, he is part of a bigger ecosystem, and what he does matters, um, and he can make his life matter. Um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge, but um, yeah, I, I now have to put my money where my mouth is. My guest today is Shireen Tadros. The new book is titled Taking Sides, a memoir about love, war, and changing the world. It uh, is a is a profoundly moving book and something that is global and very personal. And Shireen, thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you about this book after reading it. Thank you, Laurie. Likewise. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Laurie Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction Forum aims for respectful dialogue on whatever topic we happen to be discussing. Previous Real Fiction podcast episodes are available on realfictionforum.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.